0: All right, let me <coughs> review the uh, announcements on uh, <coughs> April, Saturday, April the 8th. We moved the date on the picnic, just so you know. It, what, we did have it on the 15th, but then it turned out the 16th was Easter. That was Easter weekend. That's not a good time. So uh, right before I left to go to Kiev or right around there, we changed the date to April 8th. So that's uh, the annual church picnic. There'll be sign-up sheets out there and everything for people to sign up for what you're going to bring and everything and invite friends. It's, we always have a great time. And um, so that, that'll that be great. Then the camper Ray take garage sale will be April 28th to 29th uh, from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. And the donations for that uh, are for the not to support the camp itself. They provide income uh, to provide uh, the transportation for the whole group that goes from Houston. This year they're not going to Colorado. They're going to Tennessee, eastern Tennessee. So <clears throat> they still need uh, to pay for transportation since nobody's invented a transporter yet. before we get started we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then i will open in prayer let's pray father we're very thankful that we can come together to fellowship around your word to be encouraged by the presence of other believers to be encouraged by what we learned from your word, to have our spiritual life strengthened and stabilized as we look at the many things that are going on around the world, the changes that are taking place for uh, just the divisiveness that goes on in this country and how to relax in the midst of all of these uh, political turmoils and accusations and hostility. And, Father, we pray that we might be examples of grace, examples of light, As important as political things are, we also need to be reminded we are not ambassadors for political views. We are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, and our primary focus needs to be upon helping people come to an understanding of the gospel and the truth of their salvation. Father, help us to understand these things and what we study tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. We have been studying in the life of David this period of time that is known as as David's wilderness years, or the time that David is is being chased by Saul between his anointing in 1 Samuel 16 and <clears throat> the time that he... Um, takes the throne, which is in the first chapter of 2 Samuel. As we've gone through this section, this is a time when we have spent uh, a lot of time looking at the Psalms that David wrote in this particular time. We've learned some interesting things, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Actually, the last lesson that we studied in the progression of chapters in 1 Samuel which would have been first samuel twenty two that was lesson seventy nine which was on January the tenth uh two thousand and seventeen since then i 've been to kiev we 've had the chafer conference uh, there were two or three classes there that that uh, intervened, but nevertheless, we covered a lot of the a lot of the psalms tonight we 're in lesson eighty six so that's we've had seven lessons on different psalms we had some Uh, before that as well so we are looking at these events and there's a lot of lessons that can be learned and one of the things i want you to remember that i've uh, indicated when we studied the psalms is that here the writer is focusing more on uh, god's work in preparing david developing david's uh, character and teaching him what is necessary to be a ruler of Israel as a type of the of the future messianic king now david doesn 't necessarily know any of that. See when God is working in our lives we don 't necessarily know what the end result is going to be david knows he 's been uh, he 's been anointed to be the next king of Israel. But he doesn't understand yet what the significance of that's going to be. He's not going to be given the Davidic covenant until we get to Second Samuel chapter 7. So there's a lot that's going on here, and he, like we, are in the dark about how God is going to bring him to uh, his ultimate position as the king, and then what's going to happen Uh, happen after that he therefore is being prepared by god and as since he's in the dark he's just as he's as much prone to his sin nature and given to worry and anxiety especially when we see how many enemies he has how many people are hostile to him and one of the uh, interesting things i always hear about these i don't hear about everything but i hear about some things That as I was talking about some of the earlier Psalms, especially as David is talking about his enemies whose tongues are like swords and who are slandering him and maligning him and running him down, I've heard from a couple of people who were facing that same sort of thing. I'm sure there are others that were facing other kinds of tests as we went through those Psalms. And the Psalms teach us about David's mental attitude as he is going through those tests. We see the tests described in the narrative history of 1 Samuel, but we don't get a look into his soul. We don't get to see how he is struggling with his circumstances, how he has fears, how he's angry, how he is uh, concerned, his, his weaknesses. We see none of that. You go to the Psalms and you you see that and you come to understand how David addresses the problems the same way we do. We have to go through a process where we get our mind off of the circumstances, off of the people, off of the situation, and focus back on the Lord and His plan and His purposes for our lives. The Psalms help us uh, to d- direct our attention in that way. So in the previous chapters... We've seen David in uh, being pursued by Saul, and he escaped from the court at Gibeah, and he went to Nob, which was where the priest lived, and he went to uh, Ahimelech, the priest, uh, and who was, who was very much a, afraid of what was going to be taking place. In fact, Ahimelech was going to be killed as a result of the fact that David went there David fled from there and went to Gath, thinking he would hide out among his enemies. And he did for a while until he was spotted. And then he faked uh, insanity because, uh, according to their religious belief, someone who was insane was protected by God. And so they were <clears throat> they they were afraid to touch David. And so he was able to escape. And we read uh, the Psalms that were associated with that. And giving us an insight into uh, into David's character, then we see in chapter twenty two David in his uh, wanderings, he fled from Gath and then he went to the cave of adullam and chapter twenty two verse one and there people began to gather around him, his family, and then his mighty men began to gather around him, and he was developing a cadre of leadership for the time when he would become the uh, the king of Israel. It's at that time that he found out that Saul <clears throat> murdered the priest. That was the main thing in chapter 22. And <clears throat> we learned that Ahimelech um, was killed and that his son uh, Abiathar became the next high priest. And in chapter 22, verse 21, we're told, Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. And David at that point recognized who the enemy was. It was Doeg the Edomite, who was one of Saul's uh, upper echelon advisors. Now we come to chapter 23. Chapter 23, we're going to see how David continues to escape, but we're also going to see a focus on divine guidance. This chapter, again and again, we see the situation that David goes to the Lord in prayer. Uh, verse two. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. Verse four. Then David inquired of the Lord once again, and um, <clears throat> and it goes on through the chapter again and again. Uh, David goes to the Lord, which is a great example of what we should do every time there's a situation or circumstance, whenever there's anything difficult, whenever there's anything that's that's disappointing, anything that surprises us, we should be taking those things uh, before the Lord in prayer. So we get into this, this particular section, and as we just sort of break down what is here, it. You, the scene shifts back and forth. First, we start with the focus on David in the first six verses. And then if you notice in verse uh, verse 7, it shifts. And we read, and Saul was told that David had gone to Kailah. And so we talk about Saul for two verses. Then it shifts back to David in verses 9 through 13, and then, starting in verse 14, we shift our geographical area from uh, Keilah to uh, David in the wilderness of Zith. Then we have another encounter with David and Jonathan in verses 16 to 18. And then in 19 to 28, Saul is per- hotly pursuing David again. And then we see David finally escaping and going to Gedi. And Gedi will be the location. Of the next chapter, so we won't talk about Engedi very much until we get to chapter chapter twenty four. So what happens is that David is at the cave of Adullam, as far as we know, starting with uh, the beginning of verse uh, chapter twenty two, verse one. That that's that's where he was uh, that's where he was staying, and when uh, Abiathar came uh, came to him, and then he's told by his men that the philistines are fighting against Ka'ilah. that's the hebrew pronunciation most people pronounce it the english way is kaila which is sort of the german way when you have an e-i in german you pronounce it like a long i if it's ie you pronounce it like a long e but in hebrew it's actually spelled with a q and then a apostrophe a break, and then Elah. So it's Kaela And uh, it's, a, it's a town that we will uh, look at in just a minute. But first, we need to look at the geography again and see where we are. So up here in the north, we have Jerusalem, uh, the Jebusite city. And at this point, it is still a Jebusite city. Nob is located just to the northwest uh, on this map. That's where David uh, went to uh, uh, go and get food from the priest. Then when it became known that he was there, uh, or he was uh, because of Doeg the Edomite, he fled to Gath. And there he feigned madness in front of Ahimelech. And from there he fled to the cave of Adullam. Now, if you look at this map, you see that it's, it's roughed out with shadow here. It gives you a topographical effect. This is the hill country north of Jerusalem. It becomes the hill country of Jerusalem. Down south here, it's the hill country of of Judah. What's interesting, even today, there is a major north-south road that cuts from Hebron here up towards Gibeah of Saul and goes on north, and it's called the Way of the Patriarchs. And this is the backbone of Israel today that's the disputed territory. This is the area of, of uh, Samaria and Judah, often referred to as the West Bank, which is really a misnomer. The term West Bank implies what? An East Bank, an East Bank, East Bank of what? Where's the East Bank? It's the East Bank of the Jordan. What's on the east side? Jordan, the King, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. And they didn't acquire a West Bank until they invaded across the river in in, um, uh, 19, uh, in, the, in the 60s. Actually, in, the, in 1948, they, they came across, and it wasn't until areas were recaptured by Israel in 67 that they uh, took over the Temple Mount and things like that. So in 48 and 49, they, they drew an armistice line called the Green Line. Anybody know why it's called the Green Line? Because they drew it with a green pen. Sometimes history is just pretty simple. And according to the armistice that was drawn up, uh, this was never to be considered to be a border. And who insisted on that language in the armistice? Israel or the Arabs? The Arabs. Because they didn't want it to become an international boundary or national boundary because they wanted everything, they wanted to run the Jews completely into the Mediterranean. So they didn't want. They they made sure that language was in the armistice. So you have these idiots, like people in our State Department, our former president, and others who are so abysmally ignorant of history that they. But the, what they're motivated by is anti-Semitism. They hate Israel. Anybody who insists that the 67 line should be a border hates Israel. When our Senator Ted Cruz was taken up, it's, it's just north, it's off this map, but if you go north of Tel Aviv, about eight or nine miles, there's an area there where the line, where the 67 line gets within about three miles of the Mediterranean. Now, three miles isn't very far. That's like from here over to probably the intersection of of uh Campbell and I Ten or Blaylock and I Ten somewhere right in there. That's that's pretty close. And as you come in from the from the sea, you're in the lowlands and all that lowland area which you see pictured here along the uh Mediterranean coast, that's called the Shephala. And as you come in those three miles from the Shefala, all of a sudden you hit the line of the uh, of the uh, hill country of Samaria, and it goes up about fifteen hundred to two thousand feet, and so you ha- it's almost like an escarpment that runs north and south all along there. Well, it, you know, in military strategy, the key is to always ha- have the high ground. So if you had a hostile force. Now, all of that territory up there is under the control of Israel communities. These are those West Bank settlements everybody gets all, all upset about. But if you're up there, and I've been up there once at one of the communities up there, you you if you had modern artillery uh, uh, set up up there, you would be able to uh, fire at and control everything from Hebron in the north to south of Tel Aviv. That's about 70% of Israel's population and about 70% of their high-tech industry and most of their other industry. In other words, if you control that high ground, you could destroy the modern state of Israel. That's why it's insane to think that you're going to let Israel return to the 67 uh, line because that would be committing suicide. So they should never be forced uh, to go back to that. And that's why no self-respecting Israeli will ever consider that. Um, and so all you have to do is go look on the ground. So this is that area, the hill country of Samaria, the hill country of Judah, and probably, I, 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 I won't guess a percentage, but somewhere north of 75%, maybe even 90%, of what happens in the old testament happens in this area this is the bible this is the heart of the bible story uh... where the patriarchs came uh... you go to just north of this you have shechem when abraham first came into the land he went to shechem and built an altar to god and then he left there and he went a little further south and built another author uh, altar at bethel and then he went south of there and he came down to hebron and you can even go to places for example in in this area here to the between Bethlehem and Adullam closer to Bethlehem right in this area and you can go and you can see the path that they that archaeologists have uncovered that's the way of the patriarchs and when you walk along there you realize this is the same path the same road that the uh, that the patriarchs walked, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have traveled going uh, from north to south. So David is in the heart of Judah, and he's been at the cave of Adullam, and now he's going to go uh, to Keilah. Then they told David, saying, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they're robbing the threshing floors. Uh, this is um, a couple of things to note about Keilah. First of all, this is the problem that David has to face. We often have problems, challenges in the spiritual life. Sometimes they're of a physical nature, sometimes they're of a financial nature, sometimes they're a health nature, uh, but this, and sometimes they're of a spiritual nature, but this is a physical problem in that Keilah is being attacked by the Philistines. And so, uh, this is one of the cities that has been given to uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to uh, I believe it's Joshua chapter fifteen. It's listed there with the list of various cities, and this is part, should be part of Judah. Although it looks, at the way uh, it's mentioned here, it, like it's it's not quite fully absorbed into Judah. Maybe it's as a border town. It may have a an interesting little uh, distinction there. What we learn in this passage is that the Philistines are still the major problem. They continue to be the main problem ever since the time of of Samson, which has been for at least a uh, hundred years or more. The Philistines have oppressed the Israelites. And they are continue to encroach on the territory uh, of Israel. We see David's response is to seek God's will and guidance. That's the first thing he does. He gets this report that the Philistines have attacked Keilah, and they're robbing the threshing floors. That seems to indicate that this is late spring, the time of, of threshing, and so they are coming to steal. All of the agricultural produce, the wheat that has been already harvested, the winter wheat it would be in in the spring, so uh, this David's response is to seek God's will, verse two says, therefore David inquired of the Lord, so thus, a major doctrine that we'll have to deal with in this section is the application of divine guidance. How do we seek God's will today? And how do we come to understand God's will for our life? Now, when we do this, we have to keep three things in mind, okay? Three things when we see these kinds of passages in the Old Testament. When somebody inquires of the Lord or they're seeking God's uh, guidance in, in a situation, it's a different dispensation. And there are different uh, circumstances and different uh, rules First of all, in the Old Testament period, there's an incomplete revelation. That's the whole idea of the word perfect in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, uh, 7, that, that tongues, um, and I mean, wisdom and knowledge will cease when the perfect comes. Now, Wayne House did a reference to that in, I believe it was his fourth session, he did a good job, kind of clarified things a little bit. There are three positions that are so similar there's not that big of a difference. The first is to take the perfect as the canon, which is possible. The second is a view that Robert Thomas takes and that's the view that it's the end of the Apostolic Age. Well, what happens at the end of the Apostolic Age? the canon closes. There's no more revelation. And what Wayne pointed out was probably the best explanation I've heard is that when it says the uh, the cease when the perfect comes, it's when revelation is completed. But when is revelation completed? When the canon is closed. And when does the canon close? It's basically at the end of the apostolic age. So those are basically looking at the same information, uh, just looking at different sides uh, of of that, that issue. So this is a time when revelation continues. So it was possible to go to God and to say, what do I do in this situation? And there would be divine revelation because any kind of divine guidance that specifies choice A or choice B or choice C is a form of revelation. So ongoing revelation was still normal. It was still normative in this this dispensation. Second thing we have to keep in mind, that even in this period of ongoing revelation, okay, where you know that God is speaking, he's only speaking to certain people. He's not speaking to the everyday average believer who's out there Doing whatever it is he's doing, and say, God, do you really want me to keep doing this, or should I go off to college, or should I marry that woman? That's we don't have that kind of a uh, uh, of a situation anywhere in any of the Old Testament texts. God reveals Himself to the leaders of the nation. Those are the also, by the way, the only people who have any kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit. The two are not necessarily connected, but God's God reveals himself to specific individuals and the only examples we have of those who are critical to the decision making for the nation. And so that's the second thing to keep in mind is God is own, God's revelation is being mediated through God's servants the prophets. It's not coming in any other way. So it's, it's, sometimes there's direct revelation. Sometimes it's dreams and visions, uh, as it was with Joseph, as it was with Daniel, as it was with Ezekiel. But it's always related to those that had some sort of leadership uh, function. And then the third thing uh, that we should note <coughs> is that this uh, specific divine uh, guidance is uh, only related to national circumstances. Uh, the, The previous point was it's always mediated through God's servants, the prophets. And in the third point, that it's always related to national decisions. It's not related to the everyday decisions of the everyday believer. So there's a lot of misconception about that. Uh, even in the few instances where there 's divine revelation given to the apostles and prophets in the new testament it's it 's limited to uh, to a very few and a very few occasions it 's not the experience of the everyday believer it 's never normative. This is what the part of the problem with the rise of the modern uh, charismatic Pentecostal movement is that they interpret interpreted these things that were unique and distinct to leadership and to specific circumstances as things that should be normal in every believer's experience. And that's just a complete misreading of scripture. So as we look at this, at this text, as we go through the text, we see uh, some critical things that we just need to understand about, uh, about Kyla. Okay. It's uh, one of the fortified towns that's mentioned in Joshua chapter 15, verse 45. One of those, one of those towns. Wait a minute. I need to pull up another map here. Okay. Here we go. We'll go back to this map. It's one of the fortified towns mentioned in Joshua fifteen forty-four. 44. It's lists, it It's located. Here's the West over here where the Mediterranean is where you have the cities of Ashdod, and then as you move east, uh, Kaila is located on the border, on the eastern edge of the uh, Shephelah. Now, that's important to understand. uh, It's geographical location. It's a little less than three miles south of the cave of Adullam, and it's about eight miles northwest of Hebron. It is in an area that was heavily wooded. But in the areas that were cleared, there was a lot of pasture land. It's not, even though it uh, it's about 12, 15 miles maybe from Bethlehem. And it's not far from the area right here. You see a, a faint blue line, perhaps. That is the Valley of Elah. That's where David fought Goliath. So we see a lot of these things that took place in, in this vicinity. It's uh, less than twelve miles from Gath to uh Keilah, which looks like it's about the same to Bethlehem. And so this was very desirable uh, air territory uh for the Philistines to possess. Now remember I said it's one of the fortified towns that's mentioned uh in in uh Joshua fifteen forty four so this is an area there was a, it seems like there was a series of fortified towns along this what would be the western edge of the hill country that were designed to provide protection they had they emphasized their border isn't that surprising uh is, Israelis have always done that that they need to make sure that they prevent the incursions of non-citizens into their into their territory. What a novel idea. Um, It's fortified. It's mentioned in this particular text that it has gates and bars. And uh, so this was a a part of the defensive uh, perimeter around uh, Israel. The modern name of the location is Kerbet Kila. See, Kila is the Arabic that uh, reflects the uh, ancient name Keila. And so it is thought in this chapter, as we look at what David was doing, that he hoped to use, he was going to rescue those in Keilah and then um, perhaps set up a command post there. But the citizens seemed to be more afraid of Saul. Now, as we look at this, David's initial response was to go to the Lord. Wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to be Uh, stepping out on his own, and that he wanted to have uh, God's guidance. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. See, when God gives you direction how would you interpret that? We had this whole Chafer conference last week. Gwen House talked about interpretation. Is interpretation literal? Is it allegorical? Do we spiritualize it? What do you think God meant when he said go and attack Pretty obvious. He meant to go and attack He, he that's, that's it. See, the Bible interprets itself. And when the Bible is speaking, interpreting of God of these things, it's very obvious that that. God's word is to be interpreted literally under the normal everyday use of language which includes figures of speech hyperbole uh, different things like that but we understand exactly what the Lord meant we don't have to sit there and go what am I going to do what does God mean by go and attack Uh, what could that mean now we do have an example of somebody who did that do you remember who was it that knew what God wanted him to do, but he didn't want to do that. So he had to go through some uh, various uh, machinations in order to try to avoid doing what it was clear God wanted him to do. Do you remember that? That was Gideon when he's putting out the fleece. Most people teach that Gideon was putting out the fleece to make sure he understood God. God told him to go defeat the Midianites. It was just as clear as it is here. But he wanted to avoid that, so he thought, well, maybe I can come up with something that's impossible for God to do, so I'll put out the fleece and ask God to make uh, make the dew come only on the fleece and not around it, and if God, because uh, God probably can't do that, uh, oops, and then he said, okay, let me try it another way. We'll have the dew come around it and the uh, fleece be dry, just reversed it, and so uh, that's it. Now, how would David inquire of God? We know from a uh, little later on in verse 6 that Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, who's the high priest, doesn't show up yet. He's not there. When he shows up, the text makes it clear that he shows up with the ephod in his hand. Now, that's the high priestly garment, and it would be associated with. Uh, divine guidance it is thought that the stones called the Urim and the Thummim would have been in the pockets of the ephod and so this would be used to in some way to determine uh, divine guidance but that wasn't he wasn't there yet But what we learned from back in chapter 22 is that the prophet Gad is with him. So David is referred to as a prophet. He doesn't have the office of prophet, but he had the gift of prophecy. Those are distinct. Daniel's referred to as a prophet, but Daniel was out of the land. He did not have the office of prophet. That was restricted to Israel in the land. So he had the gift of of prophecy. Now, David could have received direct revelation from God, or he could have received information from the prophet Gad, uh, who was with him. We don't know uh, exactly uh, what was going on, but David got the revelation, and apparently it wasn't authenticated yet with some sort of corollary revelation. And so David's men weren't buying it when he said that we need to go and attack the Philistines. And so David's men uh, replied to him in in verse 3, look, we're afraid here in Judah, how much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Saul's at our back. He's trying to destroy us. Why should we uh, expose ourselves to the armies of the Philistines. We, we will be destroyed. We're not sure God's telling you to do this. This is your, your agenda, David. So uh, they're, they're uh, questioning him. So David goes back. This is his standard operating procedure. He goes back to inquire of the Lord once again. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. So now David has confirmatory uh, revelation, and so he convinces his men. And in verse 5, they went to Keilah and they fought with the Philistines, uh, struck them a mighty blow, took away their livestock. Now, the livestock hasn't been mentioned yet, so that gives us a clue as to why they're attacking Keilah. They're looking to expand their pasturage and they want to bring their flocks and herds down, and they want to take this town so because it provides protection, uh, could provide protection for their uh, shepherds and their herdsmen. Then we're told after they have defeated the Philistines and saved, and the word there is Yehoshua, uh, Ye- uh, Ye- Ye- Yeshua rather, uh, Yeshah from the, the Hebrew verb, Yeshua, which means he saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now, this is another example where saved doesn't mean getting them into heaven when they die. It means to deliver them from their enemies. He's functioning as a Messiah should, as the Messianic king of Israel. He is protecting God's people, and so this is going to cause the people to want to look to him even more he cares about the nation he's concerned about serving the people and not serving himself which obviously Saul was doing then in verse 6 we're told about a side movement that happens here now it happened at that time that Abiathar the son of Ahimelech fled to David at Keilah that he went down with an ephod in his hand. So this shows that uh, the high priest is now with David. He's not uh, with Saul. Of course, his father Ahimelech was killed at Nob. Now here is a chart that I put together showing the, priestly lo- the high priestly line. It starts with Levi, who was uh, the uh, great-great-great-grandfather of... Uh, uh, of Moses, extended down through Kohath and then Amram, who is Moses father, and Aaron's father, Moses is the deliverer of Israel and the father of the uh, of the nation. Aaron is his brother who is uh, uh, ordained by God, anointed by God to be the first high priest. His line descends through. Uh, two of his sons, remember the other two were killed because they disobeyed God, uh, Nadab and Abihu. And then through that line, we have the descent of Eleazar and Itamar. Now the high priestly line initially went down through Itamar to Eli, who's the out-of-control priest at the beginning of Samuel that we studied, and he had two sons, Hophni and Penehas, or Pinchas, and they are also uh, just as spiritually corrupt as they can be, but their son, uh, I think it's uh, um, uh, Pinchas' son is Ahimelech, so he's a grandson of Eli, and his son is Abiathar. Now, What's going to happen when we get in Second Samuel is Abiathar is going to align himself with Absalom. And so that's going to be the end of his line, and his, he's going to be removed from the priesthood. And then that line will go to the line under Eleazar, which is Zadok who will become the high priest, and it's the descendants of Zadok who will be the priests in the millennial kingdom. So that just sort of ties all that together, but here's a picture of the breastplate of the high priest, and on these uh, precious gems, there's written the name of each tribe, and then also it's thought that in his pocket, they carried the urim and thummim. There's also there were stones on his, uh, on his shoulders, and on one shoulder there were the uh, six tribal names were engraved on the stone, and on the other sho- shoulder the other. Uh, 6. The purpose for the Urim and Thummim is mentioned in Numbers twenty-seven, twenty-one. Um, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. A complete description of the Uh, robe, the ephod, and the breastplate of the high priest is in Exodus 28, 6 to 35. So from Numbers 27, 21, we understand that this is a form of divine revelation to answer questions yes or no. You go to God and you say, well, should I do this? Yes or no? And so somehow the Urim and Thummim was part of that. So... Back to uh, chapter 23, verses 7 and 8. So down through 6, we see David. That's the focal point. Then it shifts to Saul in verse 7. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So he's got his Mossad or Shin operation, his undercover agents who are spread out, uh, bringing him intelligence. And they've spotted David, and he's in Keilah. So Saul said, God's delivered him into my hands. Oh, he's excited. He knows where David is. David thinks he's hiding out there in Keilah, and he is going to attack him. So he uh, raises an army. This takes some time. You don't pull all these troops together just overnight. It takes a few weeks before you get everything ready. And then they prepare to go down to Keilah to put it under siege, and to uh take David, so with all the logistics involved, maybe uh six uh six weeks two months three months uh to do that, so he's putting it together and um is going to uh, then uh, he's go- then he's going to besiege David verse nine we read. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. So again, David is going to get divine counsel. Now this section from 7 to 13 is its significance. We've already seen in the first six verses that of those six verses, of of those six verses, three of them, two, three, and four. Half of those verses have to do with divine guidance. Then we get into the next section in verses seven down to 13, we also have an emphasis on divine guidance. Uh, Robert Bergen, who authored the first and second Samuel commentary in the New American Commentary series, stated, "As portrayed by the biblical writer, The central event in the Keilah episode of verses 7 to 13a is David's pursuit. The emphasis is mine. David's pursuit of divine counsel by means of the ephod. He he said this is the main thing. 48 of the 103 Hebrew words in this section. See, I wasn't going to count them up, but he did. So I thought I'd just quote him. 48 of the 103 Hebrew words in this section, or 47% of the words, are used to depict this one seemingly minor incident. The author used the ephod-based interchange between David and the Lord to achieve several results relevant to the themes and the theological intents of the book. See, this is what happens. We see an emphasis here on David and his spiritual character. So this tells us that, again, that when David gets into a problem, he turns to the Lord in prayer. That's a pattern that we should see in every believer today, that whenever there's a problem, no matter how small, we're going to turn to the Lord in prayer. And we've seen that the examples of how David did that in the Psalms. A second thing that we see is that David... Uh, <clears throat> David's communication with the Lord shows his knowledge of God, his knowledge of of God's word, and it reveals an intimacy that that, that David has with the Lord in terms of his own spiritual life. So we learn that his standard procedure is to go to the Lord in prayer. We see that this is so standard that he has a very intimate relationship with the Lord because he's walking with the Lord. A third thing that we see that's brought out is this contrast between David and Saul. That's why the author starts off talking about Saul, then he talks about David, then he talks about Saul, talks about David, is he wants us to see the contrast in terms of the emptiness of Saul's spiritual life and the richness in David's spiritual life. And then it also emphasizes that David is focused on the Lord in terms of the law, uh, the the prescriptions of the Mosaic law and the Torah. He is going to the high priest. He's going through a prophet probably. And he is focusing on on what uh, the scripture says he should do to get specific divine guidance. And so verses 9 through 11 uh, focus on this. Uh, and so David inquires of the Lord in verse 10, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he'll come down. Now, this is really interesting because God, David prays and says, OK, I'm here in this city it's all going to come and try to take the city. And then he says in verse 12, if he comes to try to take the city, are these people in Keilah going to betray me and turn me over to Saul? And so God answers in the affirmative in both cases. He says, yes, Saul is going to come down. And secondly, they will deliver you in verse 12. Now, what's interesting is God says, Saul's going to come down and he's going to deliver you. Is that what happened? No, that's not what happened. Because when David got that information, David said, hmm, I'm not hanging around. I'm going to leave. So what we see here is another example in Scripture that in the omniscience of God, he not only knows what is going to happen, he knows what would happen if we made other choices. Now that's really important because in the all of the heated argumentation over the centuries between your 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 uh, strong high Calvinists versus those who are more moderate Calvinists, and of course the Arminians, is a recognition that that God's knowledge is is while it is certain, God's knowledge doesn't predetermine what happens. See, that's typical, and if you read Calvinism, God's foreknowledge comes, comes first, or, or God's uh, predetermination comes first. Because God can't, in their reasoning, God can't know what will happen unless God has determined beforehand what will happen. And so, there's in, in their view, there's no such thing as hypothetical knowledge in the omniscience of God, that is, knowledge of what would happen under other conditions. And the technical term for that in philosophy is counterfactuals, factuals being that which will happen, counterfactuals being those things that could have, should have, or would have happened if we had made other decisions. But there are numerous examples of this, and one of those is in, is in Matthew eleven twenty one, in Matthew eleven twenty one, Jesus said, "Woe to you, Chorazin. That was one of the uh, towns, the fishing villages on the uh, north shore of the Sea of Galilee, as long as well as Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you, see Jesus performed miracles there. If the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile, pagan, Phoenician cities, if they had seen the kind of miracles you've seen, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus says if i had gone there and done these miracles this is what would have happened and he knew that he's showing that god knows not only what will happen but he knows what what might have happened what could have happened and what should have happened so david decides it's time to leave and he gathers his men together and they departed from keilah and went wherever they could go they just they probably scattered into the hills so that they would become a decentralized target for Saul. And when Saul heard this, he halted his expedition. He said, okay, I've I've been defeated. I can't catch him. And then we're told in verse 14 that David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness. And there are a lot of places to hide in the hill country of Judea. And he remained in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day. So Saul has his Uh, scouts out he has his uh, teams out trying to spot david but god did not deliver him into his hand here we see that ultimately it's god's will that overrides human volition at times so david saw that saul had come out to seek his life and david was in the wilderness of ziph in a forest now when you go there today there's not much of a forest not like there was then and in fact, when Mark Twain uh, was in uh, the air, that area in the mid 1800s, in the 1860s, 1870s, and he wrote in his journal, he said it was devastated. There weren't any trees anywhere. The reason there weren't any trees is part of God's, I believe, part of God's judgment on Israel. Not only did he scatter the people, he also destroyed the productivity of the land. And under the Ottoman Empire, which had controlled uh, Jerusalem since uh, 1517, uh, that under the Ottoman Empire, they had uh, taxed your property based on how many trees were in, on your property. So guess what people would do to avoid paying taxes? they cut down all the trees. And that denuded the land of, of the trees. And the trees were necessary for, I know this is a terribly politically incorrect thing to say, trees were important to produce carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is not our enemy. It is our friend, and all this idea that we need to have carbon taxes and everything else is just absolutely insane and unscientific, uh, to boot. So they they and it's important to um, to soil and to pre, uh, to preserve the soil, not to promote erosion and many other things. And um, I know since I was a kid, I would see commercials. You probably remember these, as well, going back into the 60s. That to give money to Israel to plant a tree. And they have planted hundreds of thousands of trees and it's truly changed the climate in Israel and it's uh, it's brought back the land. And so this is what we see here is this description of a forest in this area. And You have the forest of Herod here, down just south of it's the wilderness of Ziph, which is between... Uh, Hebron and in Gedi, which is where we'll end at the end of the chapter. And then south of that is the wilderness of Maon. And wilderness could also be translated desert. Uh, it's just the uninhabited hill country. and But something interesting happens there. Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods so somehow David found out where John, where where uh, David was Jonathan found out where David was went to him in the woods and strengthened his hand in God that shows that Jonathan is focused on spiritual realities he understands God's plan he is applying doctrine he knows some doctrines totally different from his father and he said to David do not fear for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you You shall be king over Israel. He understood here is the crown prince, who's probably at least 10, maybe 15 years older than David, who's so humble that he recognizes he's not going to be king. David is God's choice, and he is fine with that. So he says, you shall be king over Israel. I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. This is at least the third reference to a covenant between David and Jonathan. Then we have a first reference in 1 Samuel 18.3, right after David killed Goliath, and Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him. That is, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And it's mentioned another covenant. is mentioned in 1 Samuel 20, verse eight. And verse 16, in verse 16, we read, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And so they had sworn this covenant that David would always protect Jonathan's family and Jonathan's descendants. And then in verse 19, we read, Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah. So we have these enemies of David. When we think about David's mention of enemies all the way through the um, through the Psalms, this is part of it. The, the the Ziphites, those who lived in the wilderness of Ziph, are betraying David. They, they are against David. They are his enemies, and they betray him to Saul at Gibeah. And they said, David's hiding out in the strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hachila, which is on the south of Jeshimon. Now we're not exactly sure where that is, but it's down there in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, therefore, O King, they say, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. They're, they're almost a type of Judas Iscariot who betrays Jesus to, uh, to the Romans and to the jewish leadership it's that kind of a scenario and then in verse 21 we read and saul said blessed are you of the lord this is this is how people use religion politicians use religion to create a veneer of their own justification we're a good christian we go to church all of these things create a facade to fool the the naive saul said blessed are you of the lord for you have compassion on me please go and find out for sure see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there for i am told he's very crafty so this is their um their betrayal and then he asked them to Uh, Take knowledge of all the lurking places, that is the hiding places where he hides. Come back to me with certainty and I'll go with you. And it shall be if he is in the land that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. So they arose and went to Zeph before Saul, but David and his men went south. They went down to the wilderness of Maon on the plain on, on the south of Yeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told david that is his, compa- uh, his companions and friends informed him that david that that saul was coming to seek him therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of maon and when saul heard of that he pursued david in the wilderness of maon so here's the map we see the wilderness of ziph here david is moved south you can follow this on the uh the purple line here He's moving south. He goes to the wilderness of Zif and then down here to the wilderness of Ma'on. And on this map, you can see where Masada is located. And so this is all of that area, if you've been there, that is behind, that is to the east of uh, of Masada. And north of Masada, about maybe 8, 10 miles, is in We'll look at that next time. So as they come down this way, Uh, They're on each side of a mountain, according to verse 26. Saul's on one side, David's on another side, and David tries to get away from Saul, and it manages to be successful because of of God's help. In verse 27 to 29, we're told, a messenger came to Saul and said, the Philistines are attacking. So Saul has to forget about David and turn back to uh, fight against the Philistines, and so David says, or the writer of Samuel says, therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. So David went from there and dwelt in the strongholds of Engedi. Now, we didn't get to it tonight, but what I want to talk about is related to the theme of this chapter, which is divine guidance. I've covered this before. I'll cover it again. But I find that a lot of people seem to have some problems with different things. In fact, I heard something not too, a couple of things just within the last couple of weeks where maybe I don't teach things frequently enough, uh, but we're gonna go over divine guidance again. Now, uh, if you're past the age of about 40, it's not as critical a doctrine as it is when you're younger because when you're younger, we make a lot more decisions. But the older we get, we've made decisions and we've lived our lives so older folks don't seem to need uh, this quite as much as young people do when you're in your 20s you're trying to decide what kind of job do I want what kind of education do I want who do I want to marry where do I want to live what am I going to do with my life you get a little older you've already made those decisions And so it's not as critical, but we all need to understand uh, what the Bible teaches about divine guidance. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this section, to be reminded that you are intimately involved, not just in the life of David, but every believer. And there are many principles that we can apply, uh, implications that we can relate to in the life of David. Uh, first and foremost being that we should seek your guidance for every situation in life and that guidance comes through your word that is where you have revealed your wisdom to us father we pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned today in christ's name amen